let's pull it back in. Good morning, good morning, good morning. This might be a challenge. Um, yeah, maybe that's a good way to start. Um, just to get us into this mini-series that we're in, uh, we'll take a, a little bit of a peek at a video that kind of frames where we're heading in just these few weeks. So we'll check this out. That'll help us uh, regather. So uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Wally. Uh, I am the teaching pastor here, so I'm thrilled that you are with us, uh, either here in person or online. Um, thrilled that you can gather with us. Uh, we have spent about uh, 10 months uh, walking through the gospel according to a young Jewish man named Matthew. So the gospel according to Matthew. We spent about 10 months, though, walking through what would be three years of Jesus's public ministry. So we've been looking at this, and we've gone through about three years of what he had been doing in 10 months. And what we're doing now over the next three months, uh, for the most part, is looking at the last week of his life. So we went 10 months to go through three years, which seems a bit brisk to me. Uh, and now we're going to spend three months going through about one week of his life, which is known as the Passion uh, Week, and I feel like that's a better pace. Because so much is packed into this one week, and so we're going to continue that. We started it last week. Lisa Stonehouse, uh, discipleship pastor from Harbor Life, was with us teaching. So I'm thrilled to be back. Uh, I, I was here, but to be uh, here and invited to teach this morning. We have a lot to get into. There is a lot of context this morning, and this, uh, these two stories we will sink ourselves into. Whew, they have just been, uh, for, for a long time, doing a number on me, but to be able to sink into it, um, we'll see how far we go. And I have my phone here so that I have the clock before me. I actually have a 1 p.m. all elders, all deacons, all pastors meeting at 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. today. So um, we do have to end at a specific time so I can get to that. I did not sleep well last night. So if you don't sleep well, you want an all elders and deacons and pastors meeting, because that will just, whoo, 
I am going to be on fire. Uh, so good. Um, maybe a hint of sarcasm, maybe not. Uh, but we'll, we'll do that. So we got a lot to get to. So I would love uh, to pray. And then I would love for us to sink into the text. Gracious God, I bless you for this space, this opportunity to gather as your body, the church. Uh, I bless you, God, for loving us the way that you do, the way you pour out love to each and every one of us, and that you have gathered us together now. Uh, may this time bring honor and glory to you. May the words and the posture of my heart bring honor and glory to you, God. Um, here is your church. May we have ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have for us as a community here and now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the Christ. And the church said, Amen. Amen. We're in. Now, a few weeks back, we were in a story, uh, we looked at a story of Jesus' senior student, a guy named Peter, and he was asked uh, whether or not Jesus pays his taxes. That was the question. This led to kind of a weird story of Jesus telling Peter, well, go fishing, and the first fish you catch, go ahead and pull a coin out of its mouth, take that coin and pay my taxes and your taxes, that's what we'll do. So that was the story, and we, you know, as you do, and we kind of leaned into that and go, oh, there's way more going on, but that was, um, whether it was either playful or punchy, what Jesus was doing in that moment is he was taking a shot at, he was needling anyways, the system of the day. But what I pointed out during that time is where this took place matters, and it took place in a village in the uh, Galilee region called, we often call it Capernaum. Uh, I listened to an interview with a bus driver in Israel who does tours, uh, and he, I loved it. And in his interview, he said, oh yeah, Jesus spent most of his time coming out of Kafar Nahum. And I'm like, that's it, because that's the name, Kafar Nahum, and we call it Capernaum. Um, because that's what it looks like in spelling to us or whatever, but it was lovely to hear that. Um, but it's on the northwest side, if we uh, go ahead and grab a map. Uh, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. And so that's where Jesus made his adult home, if you will. Spent most of his time in that Galilee region. And then what we looked at, though, is last week, Lisa Stonehouse said, we're now moving. Jesus has now made his way from uh, the Galilee region, and he has gone down into Jerusalem. And so last week's story was Jesus coming into Jerusalem and moving into what we know as uh, Passion Week. But the location of that story with Jesus and the taxes, where the location of Capernaum, Kafar Nahum, matters because Jesus wasn't going to stir up a huge storm then and there in that little village because that wouldn't move things. So he began to take a shot at it, if you will, but now it's moving into a place of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the location of the temple. This is the location for Israel. This is the religious headquarters. And if you're going to make a movement, now is the time and this is the place to do it. So we're going to step into a couple stories today that will take place in and around the temple and in Jerusalem that will see things spark 
really, really brightly. So as we dig into the much-needed context of this text, though, I want you to be holding two questions in mind throughout our time. Uh, what are the dominant forms of power and authority in our world today, and are they producing good fruit? If we can kind of hold those as we kind of lean into that, real small questions, um, but if we think of the dominant forms of power and authority today, and are they producing good fruit, um, we're going to sink in. So with that, uh, if you join me in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, it looks like this. Jesus, now in Jerusalem, entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, maybe this story is a bit familiar. You've heard it before, possibly. Uh, it tends to be one that gets out, if you will. But as we say over and over here, what matters so very much? Context, context, context. Um, we're going to start by situating ourselves in and around the temple, looking at specific spaces and what they function like for the temple. We're going to begin with a diagram. So we'll go to a diagram first to just begin to look at who was and was not allowed in these different spaces. And this is really important. Then we'll look at some models, some pictures of what the temple looked like back then, what remains, some different things. But let's start with what you see on the outside temple courtyard or more importantly, Importantly, the Gentiles' court. This is important. This is where essentially anyone can come and be on the platform. You are now up in the temple platform. You can be in there, but then you move to what is called the court of women, and at that point, that specifically is Jewish women. So now if you are not Jewish, you are not going any farther into the temple. You are only on the platform. You're in the courts, outer courts, Court of women, Jewish women. Then the court of Israel is specifically Israel men. It is not women. You can't go beyond there. So now there's a space for the men to go if you are Israeli, Jewish. And then you go a little bit further and you get into uh, the court of priests, as you see. That is where the altar was. So sacrifices would be done there. But only the priests go into that area. From there, you have the main temple uh, facility, and you get to the holy place where the priests that are serving at that time can go in, and then you have the most holy place, or the holy of holies, in which only the high priest can go, and only once a year can the high priest go in to the holy of holies. They understood if someone who is not allowed in were to go in, they believed they would be struck dead. Um, so this is uh, really important to get this idea of how it is. Now what I want to do is we'll go and look at, this is a model of the, in Jerusalem, in the museum, there's a model of it, a little blurry, sorry, Court of Gentiles, 
Uh, you get the inner courts. A beautiful gate is kind of the main entrance there. It's called the beautiful gate. Next slide. Uh, we get, uh, give you a better picture of this model in Jerusalem. It's stunning. Uh, and it's really helpful to get an idea of what it looks like. And you see the outer courts. You're on the platform, but you actually into the temple is there. And so few could get in there. Next slide. This will give you an idea of what that looks like. And I love the fact that you have the menorah, these four lamps. We did a story before in John at the uh, Feast of Sukkot in which they would light those lamps, which are 70 feet tall. And they would use the priest's old garments as wicks to be able to light them. It was just, they're massive. But you get an idea of what it would look like, how the barriers were, who could be where and who could not go any further. Uh, next slide. Uh, this gives you, we're going to now move. So that gives you an idea of that part. Now what we're going to do is we're going to step outside of the temple courts. We're going to head down this kind of main entrance. This here is known today as Robinson's Arch. That's what they would refer to it as Robinson's Arch. And we're going to head that direction, which is the south southwest side of it and then we get some here's a good picture of what that arch would look like a, a rendering next slide uh, this will give you a, the model and what's important to know though is in and around the arch underneath it and you'll see down in here there were shops and there were booths next slide uh, this is uh, the temple today uh, what it looks like and where the arch was which was destroyed, but there are the remains down here, and this here area, next slide, uh, you have this, these cutouts, and these are really important because these, these are where shops would be, where people would be selling, the religious people would be selling animals for sacrifices, as well as the money changers would be in here that would look something like this. Uh, a money changer would just be in a little slot, and this is where the money changers would be in order to exchange money in and around Robinson's Arch. Are you with me? This is important because in these cutouts, they're doing this money changers. They're selling animals for sacrificing because if you were to travel any kind of distance, say coming from the Galilee, what you need to bring as your sacrifice is an un blemished lamb. If you cannot afford a lamb, then you would bring two doves, cheaper, but you could do that. But they are to be unblemished. They are to be uh, perfect is how we would say it. So if you're coming from the Galilee and you're walking your lamb from Galilee, which is at least three, probably a four-day journey, the chances of it getting hurt, maimed, break a leg, getting uh, stolen possibly, those are too high of a chance. So you wouldn't want to bring it. So... Religious leaders say, tell you what, we will sell unblemished animals right near the temple so you're all set, so you don't have to concern yourself with it. This was a good thing. Convenient. Thank you. That's really helpful. Then the um, uh, money changers. Money changers, the job of a money changer was necessary and not fundamentally bad. If you think, oh, they're bad. No, no, no. It was good. Why? Because they exchanged regular money for the special temple coin. It's called a, a Tyrian shekel, and it has on it, so a shekel that has often a picture of the seven species that were kind of the commerce of Israel. You have grain, you have wheat, barley, you have 
uh, pomegranate trees, uh, you have fig trees, uh, you have olive trees, you have grapes, you have the seven main species. And so they'd be on the coin. This is your temple coin. You need one of these in order to buy a, uh, a lamb or doves. You do not want to use regular currency because regular currency uh, would have a picture of Caesar on it, which is a graven image, and you do not bring a graven image into the temple. Are you with me? So you want to exchange to make sure you don't bring a graven image in because you have Caesar Augustus. And notice how here it says Augustus Divi, which is uh, Augustus the Divine One. So you're not bringing this trash into the temple. So you exchange and get a temple coin. Then you buy the animal that, or you can take the coin in to the temple. But this is what's happening. Now, this all sets up to help us understand, here's the thing. In our story, the tension spikes because Jesus is flipping over tables and benches because the money changers and, and those selling animals are where? In the temple, not around the arch. They're in the temple courts. And so he's upset because they've crossed the line. They're abusing their business practices by bringing them into the temple courts. So they are misusing and misrepresenting the temple itself. Secondly, by flipping over the tables and scattering the animals, he is putting the sacrificial system on pause. This is a way for the sacrificial system to be stalled, a way to announce that this whole system now is not the way to revolution. And this is a big deal. It's the first step of putting an end to the system, which altogether will be finished, put away with, on the cross. It's a big idea, but he's starting now saying this system needs to go away. It is dysfunctional. Which takes us to Jesus saying this then. He explains what it is. It is written, Jesus said, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are, and this is important how the language, you are making it a den of robbers. Now we have some key words here that need context. Very important. Let's first go with leasties. Leasties, go ahead and say leasties. We see in the NIV it says robber. It's a bad translation. It's a bad translation, because if you think of robber, you're thinking of thief. But what it is, is a brigand or a violent revolutionary. A brigand, they were revolutionaries who believed so strongly in God's coming kingdom, they were prepared to take the law into their own hands. Are you with me? Which meant kickstarting the kingdom through violence and force. Brigands were known to hide out in caves, like this, so they would often hide out in caves um, throughout, and they would plan and plot, how are we going to kickstart this revolution? When are we going to storm the powers that be and flip this whole thing over by violently revolting? That's what they did. And Jesus is calling out that entire way of thinking, comparing the money changers and the animal sellers. You are behaving like brigands. You're, you're thinking the temple is for revolution, violent revolution. That is not what the temple is for. You have overstepped your bounds. You are misthinking. Are you with me? 
So and our, our friend N.T. Wright, a scholar, says that this, Jesus is announcing that the temple itself, instead of being regarded as the place where Israel could come to God in prayer, had instead come to stand for the violent longings of the brigands for a re great revolution in which the kingdom of God would come by force. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was really crystal clear as to walking into the kingdom of heaven, in, it looks much, much different. And he paints a picture that is not about violence, but it's about mercy. It's about peacemaking. And so it's very different than using the temple where revolution is. And last week, if you uh, listened or heard or were here, Lisa uh, Stonehouse talked us through like, when Jesus came on a donkey and he comes riding in and they're, they're chanting and they're waving a symbol of political revolution, the palm branch, and they thought he's going to come in. But they're like, why is he on a donkey? That's a symbol of peace. Where is his military? Because isn't he going to storm the temple now like a brigand and start revolution? Do you see why they're like, yes! And then Jesus starts weeping. Jesus wept. You're missing it. You've lost the plot. That's not how this thing is going to work. And we continue to see that. Now he walks in the temple and he said, I think not. You have completely missed the plot. And he's calling it out. And Jesus' actions in the temple were also a response to a question raised by the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, which he is quoting, but he is actually tweaking, Israel's ancestors in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, uh, Jeremiah says this, he's speaking to the Israelites about how you've lost the plot back then before they go into exile. Has this house, this temple, which bears my name, which means my reputation, my essence, what's it say though? Has this house become a cave of brigands to you? That's what Jeremiah said. What does Jesus do? He answers the question, you have made this place into a brigand's cave. Do you see the difference? He's like, you've done this. You were warned about it hundreds of years ago, and you went ahead and have continued to make it this way. You're misusing my father's reputation and who the divine is. Hooey. It is not the buying and selling and the money changing itself Jesus is objecting to. He's objecting to how they have repurposed the symbol of the, the temple from one of prayer and worship and connection with the divine to the place where they believe violent, rev forceful revolution will now take place. They didn't understand it, and Jesus is upset and trying to give them as many pictures of, please wake up, this is being misused. Once the brigand-like religious folks are put on pause in Jesus' actions and cleared out, something really fascinating happens. Verses 14 and 15. They're cleared out, and then it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children, oh, children are crying out in the temple, singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Then the religious people became angry. Now the tables have turned, pun intended. 
Come on. It's a good pastor's joke right there. <laughs> yeah, see, now we're talking. Oh. Okay. The religious leaders are the ones who are angry now in what is taking place here. Ooh. Context, context, context. Here's the thing. There is a story in the Hebrew scriptures in which King David, David has just been anointed king of Israel at the age of 30, and he is searching for a place to set up his headquarters. At this point in David's life, what will become the city of Jerusalem was known as Jebus, and it was occupied, belonged to the Jebusites, and David sees this city and says, this would be a good place for my headquarters. So he says, I will take my military and overtake it, and this is where we will be. Second Samuel is our text, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, and it says this. This is the message version, which helps. David and his men, his, his military, immediately set out for Jerusalem to take on the Jebusites who lived in that country. But they said, the Jebusites said, oh, you might as well go home. Even the blind and the lame could keep you out. We sit up high. You're not going to be able to get in here. We have this thing fortified. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. You can't get in here. They had convinced themselves that David couldn't break through, but David went right ahead and captured the fortress of Zion, known ever since as the city of David. That day, David said, to get the best of these Jebusites, and I had all these other pictures of how they used the water filtration system, like how they got in. It's really fun. Not, we don't have time this morning. I got a meeting. <laughs> delete, delete. Oh, it was, anyways. So he says, not to mention this so-called blind and lame, lame and blind bunch that David now hates. In fact, he was so sick and tired of it, people coined the expression, no, no lame and blind allowed in the palace. This is fascinating. David conquers Jerusalem, sets up his headquarters there. His son Solomon builds the temple here. Solomon makes it a law. No blind and lame are to come into the temple in honor of my father David. And in this moment where Jesus clears out the temple and the blind and lame come to him and he heals them, he is breaking the law. That law. Can you see how the story, though, of the legendary heroic King David could make it easy for Hebrew people to believe that all it takes is a powerful military and a strong king to win by way of violent revolution? To believe that with a mighty military and a great king, God will empower the good people to defeat the bad people. Which is really fascinating how people thought back then. Right? Now we can see how Jesus' actions and words in the temple are an announcement of how God's kingdom will and will not operate. Far too many people have used this story of the clearing of the temple saying Jesus' righteous anger, he's angry, but you call it a righteous anger, gives them or others permission to be righteously angry. But the question is, what is it that gets us angry? What is it that gets us angry? Traffic? I caught myself this week chuckling at how upset I got in traffic 
you're going to exude that kind of energy. You have only so much. You're getting older, mister, fella, is what I called myself. You want to use your energy getting upset about traffic? That person, the light is green. It's been green for probably seven seconds. Get on the, okay. You see? Maybe, maybe it's navigating the grocery store. Whoo! I, I see you. I see you pushing your cart. That says 15 items or less. You got 40 in there. Get Sally. Back it up. I have milk and bread. Hold on. Is this what I'm going to get upset? Is this where I'm going to exude all kinds of energy? Steaming, kicking, what? Here's the thing. How about racial injustice? Maybe that would get us a bit. And I want to, why I want to bring that up? Do you know this story is the most common story used from the scriptures to justify racism? Do you know who quoted this story and talked about this story in his writings? Adolf Hitler. He said, because of this story, we then should do away with the Jewish people. It says so right here. Jesus cleared the temple of such people. Uh, context, Jesus was Jewish. But he used it, and, and if you're like, well, that didn't work. Or did it? Context, good heavens, what is it that gets us upset? Because it actually should be flipped. What Jesus is doing here is who's welcome? Who are you keeping out? What are you doing? Where is this anger being directed and how is it being directed? Context is so important. And then I want to address the hand that's being raised and saying, I know we're not getting you know, anger and violence and stuff, but isn't a gospel, isn't there a gospel writer that says something about Jesus using a whip and going all Indiana Jones in the temple? Again, context, context, context. John, the Gospel of John, says this, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Again, so he made a whip out of what? Really important. Circle that word, cords. And drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Doesn't say anything about being violent towards people, but if you're like, but he made a whip of cords. Did you know that first, the first thing is, he talked about my father's house being a house of prayer. So he said this is about worship and prayer, prayer specifically, and then the word for cords is the same word for a good Jewish male would wear his prayer shawl into the temple, and on the prayer shawl are these cords, same word, that hang down that remind you of Torah and how we are to live in following God. And so when it says he made a whip of cords, he used his prayer shawl to make a big symbol, picture, action to say the only weapon that should be found in my father's house is the weapon of prayer. Because when they would take their prayer shawl and they would pull it up over their head and then they would close their wings as they called it, this was to go into your prayer closet. 
Would you go into your closet and pray? It is to just spend time like this. So when he makes a whip, he's using his prayer shawl to say, no, 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 no. This is the only weapon in my father's house, prayer. Prayer, not your chaos. Are you with me? So um, he didn't construct an Indiana Jones whip. It's a prayer shawl. Jesus is playing how prayer is the lone weapon to be used, and he's revealing the original purpose for the temple, which takes us to Isaiah chapter 56 with the heading above it, and a lot of our Bibles is salvation for others. We're going to get to verse 7. We'll throw it up there, but I want to read from verse 1 to lead us into it that will guide to get an idea. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed are those who do this, who hold it fast, those who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and keep their hands from doing any evil. Listen, verse 3. Let no foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Please don't say that. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial. We could dig into that word another time. And a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name, the reputation, the essence of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. It will be a house for all nations. These foreigners and eunuchs I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Why this matters is Jesus highlights what have, what have you done to my father's house by saying this, but then he leaves out the all nations part because as a good rabbi, what does he do? He leaves them to finish the thought. Who is the house of prayer for? And basically backs up and says, finish that for me, won't you? For all nations. Hoo-wee. It's stunning and it's so deeply challenging. In this moment, Jesus is reclaiming the temple because it has been desecrated by religious corruption, spoken about by the prophet Jeremiah. When King David conquered Jerusalem, he leveraged his wounded ego by keeping the blind and the lame out, then labeled the blind and lame as enemies. Then the exclusion of these people from the temple became law. A thousand years later, Jesus is flipping that over. Jesus knows the temple has been corrupted, so as a sign of a new day, the whole system must be driven out and the temple exposed for what you have done to it. 
Jesus' actions are not about violence to overtake the temple, but rather he is reclaiming the temple for a bigger, more beautiful intent. I would say here's what the temple is for. A gathering place for all people to experience healing and to take the next right step with the divine. Which is exactly what happens next. After the temple has been cleared out, we get our scripture that says this, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Come on. Jesus has cleared out the corruption and now we see the original and forever intent to make room for the hurting. For hundreds of years, it was only for the upright, for those who could afford to buy sacrifices, but now Jesus is welcoming the left out and looked down on the poor and the hurting and he heals them. And what does all this goodness lead to? Verse 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw what? Well, they're amazing things. Do they think they're amazing? He did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, circle that. They became angry. They are calling Jesus son of David. They believed the Messiah, the one who was to come, would take up David's throne. And through what Jesus just did, he is correcting, redeeming, and transcending David. Hooey. But doing this, the religious, the, the religious people, they don't think this is amazing at all. Because they're wrecking, he's wrecking their profitable system. The two dominant systems of Jesus' day, the Roman Empire and the temple system, could not stand the ways of Jesus. And that's still common today. Look at how the religious leaders responded. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yep. Jesus replied, have you ever read? That's funny. This is the religious leaders. They know the law up and down, back. They haven't memorized. Have you, ever, have you never read? Real quick, it's kind of like, I am the greatest Detroit Lions fan in the world. Well, have you ever heard of Barry Sanders? That's, they'd be like, what? Did you just ask me that ridiculous question? Are you, that's my comparison. I don't get to watch the Lions team. Anyways. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. So he's making a quote here. Uh, so then we have the kids proclaiming through songs and shouts that the Messiah has arrived in Jesus. The Pharisees, religious leaders, are furious because Jesus has revealed their whole system as absent of justice and righteousness. And then the song that Jesus points to was supposed to be their anthem. It was supposed to be the soundtrack of their lives for hundreds of years. It's Psalm 8-2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the, the foe and the avenger. If you want to silence the enemy, do so through the praise of kids. What's Jesus' weapons? Prayer. The singing and shouting of kids. Kids praising God with awe and wonder, the weapon of choice when in battle, when a crooked culture and corrupt religion are flexing, this is Jesus' response. We ought to take notes. 
And then, verse 17, it says, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now, quick picture, uh, Bethany, if you leave uh, the temple and you head out here, Bethany is down here, this city and to go into, so it's not far away. So he heads out to that city. Now, here's the thing. Bethany, the word Bethany means house of misery. That's what Bethany means, house of misery. It's a village of outsiders. This was the place where the lame could go since they were not allowed in Jerusalem, and it's where Jesus' closest friends are, a couple Marys and Lazarus that we would read about. This is the place and the people who Jesus chooses to spend his time with, those who are broken, hurt, lame, and excluded. And Jesus goes there and spends time there with them. I would say it this way, Jesus makes room for those who are left out, looked down on, and considered broken by the upper crust of religion, and he heals them. Then Jesus goes to a village known as the house of misery, and he turns it into a house of praise. Come on. Oh, we will not be. We will be raucous in our praise. When someone speaks of a church space, a set-apart space, this is the picture found in the life of Jesus, a place to gather and experience belonging and healing by all people, a place for learning how to live as a community rooted in justice and righteousness, which should raise some questions for you and I today. Two things that ignite a fire within me. When the church doesn't make room for people, instead they hurt and shame and keep people out. And when people criticize and cut on the church and do nothing about it. Well, those two things will get me hot. This call has brought me to this community in ways we see similar to the text, the last couple years in our society, world, have revealed the church to be on fire. So will we just stand back and throw more kindling on the fire, or will we participate in constructing a new kind of church for a new world in which we live in, in which we say, welcome, all who are hurting and broken and weary and have been pushed out and shoved down and told you don't belong, you do with us and you do here. Welcome. Who are we making room for? And how are we making room for them? Very quickly... I want to spy into the next movement. Look at that, because there are two stories. This is much quicker. But we move on from here, and then it says this. Remember, Jesus goes out to Bethany. Now it's the next morning. As Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Uh, missed breakfast. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Hello? When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. 
Jesus replied, this is such a goofy story. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have trust and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you trust, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. First, this is about judgment on the religious establishment again. If you're like, why is Jesus, well, I get hangry, but why would you just go and spaz out at a fruit tree? What's that all about? Well, here's the thing. He, Jesus is calling out the nation for pinning their hopes on a fractured foundation. Last week when Lisa talked about the triumphal entry, as we call it, comes into Jesus. Jesus rode in on a donkey in humility, announcing peace. But not peace through military victory, as was the mantra of Rome. Peace through humble, sacrificial love, which serves rather than slays. And then the scene from the temple tantrum, if you will, to the fig tree, is about announcing further judgment on the way of war and violence and religious corruption. In rabbinic literature, the sages and religious leaders of the Jewish people were called ta'anim, figs. The religious establishment was known as a fig tree, and they were the figs. Figs were the symbol for the religious establishment, so Jesus isn't hangry. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, missing breakfast is not a big deal then, right? Jesus is saying the religious establishment has dried up and it will not bear fruit again. The system you set up is dried up. That's the announcement he's making here. You have exploited and missed the Messiah. The scene around a fig tree is an explosion of images and a callback to the Hebrew prophets. Very quickly, Isaiah 34. All the stars in the sky, the this is the prophet launching into God's judgment on the nations for ignoring the divine, walking away from the divine, and religiously pretending to follow the divine, which leads to this collapse. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved if you behave this way. And the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like what? Withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Next is Jesus was drawing from Jeremiah 7. We looked at Jeremiah 7 when he was in the temple. And then this scene at the fig tree is also the next scene in Jeremiah. We call it chapter 8. It's a pronouncement on Israel, which ends with this in verse 13. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be what? Oh, wow. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Then in Jeremiah 24, we don't have time to get into it, but there's a story of two baskets of figs. One basket is full of good figs, representing those who were hauled off into exile in Babylon, who God says, I will protect them, prepare them, and return them to the land. And then a basket full of rotten figs who received swift judgment and will be known as a stench to the rest of the world. But when Jesus' students ask, how could this be and what does it all mean? Jesus offers a call to trust the deeper and better way. And he says this in, back, in verses 21 and 22. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt. So I put there trust. Faith is the word. But we'll get into the word in a minute. 
Not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done, whatever you ask for in prayer. With faith, you will receive. Another scene of judgment on the failed system in the temple. Then you have false power and authority that dominates the surrounding culture. Then you have the insecure, paranoid leadership of someone named Herod the Great. Herod the Great had literally constructed a mountain in the desert for building on one of his palaces. It's known as the Herodium. It's seven and a half miles south of Jerusalem. And this is where Herod's tomb it was, publicly, was found and publicly announced in May of 2007, very recent, by archaeologist Ehud Netzer. Here is a, a sketching of what it looks like. He literally built a money... Um, uh, mountain he took dirt and then put his palace on it next slide this gives uh, an idea of what it looks like today they're, they've been excavating it for a while and they're finding this mountain what he had done because he tried to bury it then and he wanted to be buried there next slide and you get in and there this is what uh, Ehud Netzer that's actually he had found this and they had put this whole thing in and it's actually on this railing Ehud Netzer he makes the announcement hey we found the tomb we found the tomb and then he was leaning on the thing fell and died it's terrible um, but this, yeah, and it, it's crazy, but this thing, so he finds this, and then this next picture, um, this is the picture I took in May of Herod's tomb. So Herod's tomb, where they discovered, and this, this little uh, thing over there, they're in the midst of reconstructing to build that thing. They're going to reconstruct the palace at the Herodium. <laughs> you go back there in a few years, and it's going to be bonkers um, from what they're digging up and finding. This, so when he says, Jesus is like, oh, well, if you believe you can do this, you can say to that mountain, you know, the one Herod constructed, you can take and throw that thing into the ocean. That's what kind of power prayer is compared to that false power. Oh. So he's like, get out of here with that. So truly I tell you, this thing, faith, that word faith, real quick, it's the word pistis. Go ahead and say pistis in Greek. It means faithfulness, trust, fidelity, persistence in the way of Jesus. That's when we talk about faith in Jesus. Faithfulness, faithful to Jesus, trust in Jesus, fidelity, persistence. There is the power and authority of Rome, which is empire, ruled by military intimidation and violence. There is religious manipulation and corruption. And then there is Herod's paranoid chaos and violence, which partnered with both Rome and the religious system to oppress people. And then there is the power and authority of Jesus, the way of sacrificial love of the suffering servant, who says, welcome Come to me and I will heal you. You are embraced, you belong, you are loved. Not only was that way, the way of Jesus, upside down and completely countercultural back then, it is clearly countercultural today. The dominant forms around us look much more like empire, religious manipulation and corruption, as well as the paranoid, power-hungry ways of Herod. If Jesus' way of peace is peace through connection, love, service, and forgiveness, then that raises all sorts of questions for us. Are the characteristics of hospitality, love, grace, and forgiveness the dominant tattoos on people's hearts and expressed through people's actions today? 
What about for those who identify themselves as the church? What will be our way in the world? Will it be empire? Will it be religious corruption? Will it look like Herod? Or will we love our neighbors as ourselves? Will we love Walker well? And will the spaces we create be spaces of belonging and healing for all people? To help center ourselves on the way, the life of Jesus, we come to the table. We participate in the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of Jesus breaking himself open and pouring himself out for the healing of the world. And then he says, come to me, trust, knit yourself to me, follow me in this way, and then, so we do so as a symbol, a picture, I trust, I'm in, I, I'm participating. Yes, this is the way that I want to walk. This is the way I want to live. This is what I want to be persistent in. This, the way of Jesus, the things that get me upset are the things that get God upset, and I will want to respond the way Jesus does of embrace. And so when we then take and then we go and break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the belonging and healing of the world. So we want to create a little space for those who want, those who want to step and participate in the Eucharist, you will hear things like, oh, there's some bread. This bread is a picture, it's a symbol of Jesus' body given for us. When we say, do this in remembrance of me, you hear things like, like we, we take this in remembering the way of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus for us. Then we take the cup and we remember his blood poured out. He didn't, sh he didn't shed blood. Like he didn't, his blood was shed. He was killed by the system and the systems partnering up of the day. And so we remember that and we said, oh, this way. We take this in honor. It's an act of worship. So I want to participate in the life, the death, and the resurrection, the new life. Of Jesus. So as you come, you might hear, this is a picture of the bread. This is a picture of Jesus' body. The cup is a picture of his blood poured out. And we take this and we reflect on it. And then we leave as a community, families, individuals, certainly, but as a community to embody and live out the way and ways of Jesus. Gracious God, We bless you for this time to be able to sink into the scriptures, to learn, to listen, to have our hearts formed and reformed to you, your ways, your love, your grace, your invitation. May we say yes. God, my prayer is that we would say yes here this morning and that we would live lives that display your ways to a world that is hurting, is broken, it's frustrated, it's confused, 
It's in need. Our world is in need of hope. May we say yes to you and may we walk in your ways to embody and offer a new way forward, a hope in you. So as we come to the Eucharist, the good gift, may you see this. May you embrace us in this way as an act of worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, there will be a couple of us over here and a couple over there, uh, and we'll serve the cup uh, and the bread. And then if you need gluten-free, um, we have that as well for you. Uh, so take the time as you would. Uh, we will sing and create some space and come as you feel led. Um, you are grace and peace in this moment. In the pressing, you are making new eyes. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I yield to you to your careful. trust you I don't need to understand make me a vessel make me a 
continue this uh, conversation next week um, because from here, when you, you do such things as Jesus does, the authorities of the day, the religious leaders are going to confront Jesus and ask him some questions, which would come to us, what, what makes you think you can do this? And how, how are you going to do this? Which is to us, how will we make space? For others, how will we create spaces, places, lives that let people know you are loved, you are welcome, you belong? How do we do that with our homes, with our lives, in our workspaces, in our neighborhoods? How do we let people know you are loved, you belong? You are welcome. How do we do that as a community? How do we do that as a community? We do our best to try and create spaces, create opportunities for us to extend that invitation, that love, embrace to others. And it takes all sorts of different people with unique gifts and talents and skills and ways about that you go about to show that love. We need you to do that out of a response for what God has done for us, how he loves us, and so it is a buoyant, joyful, even if tension-filled response an invitation. Oh, I want to live this way. It is not easy. In fact, it's very difficult, especially in our culture and society. How do we do this differently? How do we live love forward? That is what we'll lean into some more. That's some of what is before us that we lean into, we wrestle with as a community. May you know Walker Harbor Church, may you know that you are loved, you are met right where you are, right as you are. You have a Savior in Jesus the Christ with arms open who says come and heals with his love, with grace, compassion, mercy. There is embrace. You belong. You all belong. May you Receive that, accept that, step into that, hold that, trust that love and that grace extended to you. And may you, with your life, as you go about today, as you wake up tomorrow, if so blessed, that you would extend that love then to others with your life, doing so with a new kind of power and a new kind of authority known as the grace and peace of Christ that you would go. Amen and amen.